Namaste and welcome to Pods by PEI, a policy discussion series brought to you by Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. I'm Sonia Jimmy, wishing you all a happy New Year 2024. As we return to PEI from our holiday break, we're eager to embark on what promises to be an outstanding year, both for our Pods by PEI podcast and our overall initiatives. In today's episode, we have PEI colleague Lasta Joshi in conversation with Raju Pandit on evaluating COP28 in Nepali perspective. Raju Pandit Chetri is the Executive Director of Prakriti Resources Center, an environment and development organization based in Kathmandu. He has over 15 years of experience in climate change policy and sustainable development. Raju has followed UN climate change negotiations under the UNFCCC and Green Climate Fund for over a decade. He closely works with the government of Nepal and the least developed country group at the climate negotiations. He has written and contributed to several papers on climate change. Raju passionately advocates for ambitious climate actions and sustainable development. In this episode, Lasta and Raju dive into the pivotal themes and outcomes of the recent COP, recounting Raju's participation in this and multiple previous COPs. They explore the significance of COP Nepal and the real-life experience of Nepali delegates. They discuss recent critical shifts in the climate narrative on fossil fuels, proactive participation of major oil industries, global stock take, loss and damage, and Nepal's push for the mountain agenda. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Namaste, this is Lasta Josi. Namaste, I'm Raju Pandichatri. Welcome to Pods by PEI, Raju. Thank you very much. Starting off, could you share what it is like to attend and participate at COP? Those who attend share it as one of the most hectic two weeks. As someone who has participated in COP for many years, how do you navigate this maze of events and track what's happening when you attend these meetings? Well, the Conference of the Parties, or what we call a COP, happens every year. And every year, it's quite an interesting experience, given that uh, different countries host it. And they have their own style of hosting it, given what the venue looks like and how big the conference that they would like to organize. This time, over 85,000 people attended COP28 in Dubai. Of course, it was held from 29th November to 12th December, and it extended by a day, given the complexities, politics, and trying to come to a conclusion at the end. So there was a lot of things happening at the COP. Now, when you talk about the Conference of Parties, it's basically under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. We talk about how do you want to tackle the problem of climate change. But having said that, the COP venue is also a venue where a lot of practices, signs, policies are discussed on the sidelines. So countries have pavilions. There are side events being hosted by the UNFCCC Secretariat to share uh, experiences on the ground. So there are thousands of activities happening almost every day. So in order to really navigate that, if you're a first-timer, there are a lot of complications. You'll have to know what the agenda is for the day. You have to be uh, familiar with the venue. You'll have to also know like what kind of people are attending, You know, what, where do you belong to, where do you have to really go. Apart from that, also practical aspects like you know, where do you eat, where are you going to rest, where, where is your next meeting going to really happen. So there are a lot of things to navigate during the COP. However, for me, 
being in this process for quite some time. I've learned how to really do this work for myself, given my past experience. It sounds like a lot of work on the ground. You mentioned that these events discuss issues of climate change. Why are these talks on climate change crucial? Well, if you look at uh, globally now, we, we all say that the climate change is the biggest threat to humankind, right? So in that particular context, we have no choice of not tackling climate change. And for a country like Nepal and for us, UN is the only forum where the multilateralism really takes place. That's the place where we go and share our thoughts, or put our agenda. And this is also a place where about 198 countries globally come together to find a common solutions to climate change. We know that this is a quite a complicated issue, given that this is just not an environmental issue, but is also related to eco- socioeconomic aspect of the society. So it's quite a massive political challenge, I would say, because there are interest groups there. Developed countries have their own way of dealing things. Developing countries, they have a certain demand given what the uh, UNFCCC uh, convention has really laid out or the Paris Agreement that was agreed in 2015 laid out. So in order to implement that, this is the forum where all the countries can come together and find the solutions in tackling climate change, whether it be looking at it from a mitigation angle, adaptation uh, angle, or providing resources and technology and how we all debate to really come to a consensus where every country can go home and apply actions or policies so that they are contributing to tackling climate change. So indeed, a must-have conversation of the moment. Now, jumping into the COP28, which just concluded in December, it was a crucial year. The global temperature reached 1.1 degree of a pre-industrial levels, nearing the critical 1.5 degree mark in the Paris Agreement. The urgent need for rapid emissions reduction has remained a clarion call to avert this impending crisis. However, controversies surrounded this COP from the start. The host UAE, a top oil producer led by Sultan Al-Jabbar, CEO of a national oil company, sparked skepticism as he led discussions on fossil fuel phase-out. We also witnessed a staggering 400% surge in participation from oil companies and lobbyists compared to the previous year. What's your take on this climate narrative shift at COP28? Considering consecutive COPs have been hosted in petro states and there is an increased oil representation, do you view this trend as a barrier or a catalyst for climate action? given the need for a significant transformation, particularly in the oil industry. Also, how do you perceive this proximity to major oil companies during this type of climate talks? Of course, there was a lot of controversies, a lot of doubts and skepticism on how this uh, incoming COP presidency, or let's say the UAE has a president of the COP, would take this COP forward, given that it's an oil-producing country, and the country, whatever it's modernized, is built on oil money. There's a lot of skepticism for sure. But people also looked from a positive side that maybe an oil-producing country, if given responsibility, maybe they will have to, even for face-saving reasons, that they will be more ambitious in, in tackling climate change. We have been calling for phase out of the fossil fuel for a long time. But for a country like Nepal, where climate impacts are very huge, given the melting glaciers in the Himalayas or having climate-induced disasters yearly. A lot of these impacts are growing over the years. It's just in Nepal, but also in 
similar country like ours in least developed countries or now even in the developed countries where the climate disasters are growing. We know the real cause of this is the fossil fuel uh, exploration and burning of the fossil fuel. That's what is uh, creating the problem. But now when a country like UAE, that uh, that's the you know, oil-producing country host this. There was a lot of skepticism, as I said, but a good signal from the COP28 as an outcome. For the first time, it uses wordings like transitioning away from fossil fuel. This is a very big signal to the global uh, explorer who rely on fossil fuel, who, you know, really sell and make money out of fossil fuel. Now, the global community will have to look into finding solutions to these fossil fuel and rely more on renewable energy. It has not only said that, but it has also reflected saying that we want to triple the renewable energy source. We want to double the energy efficiency. We want to provide uh, technologies that really works in favor of renewable energy. So when you see what the outcome has really been, I would take this as a very mediocre outcome, not as a big win. However, a good signal for the international community, investors, private sector to really say that tackling climate change and moving away from fossil fuel is a fundamental issue. Of course, how this will be translated into action is yet to be seen, but the signal seems positive for now. Definitely, it was commendable that this COP managed to put conversation on fossil fuel on the table till the end, despite a few hiccups in between. Now, continuing on with the wins and misses of this year's COP. How far do you believe that this year's COP has contributed to advanced climate action since the conclusion of COP27 and Paris Agreement? And conversely, were there any notable shortcomings or areas where stronger actions or agreements were expected, but perhaps fell short? Well, in this COP, one of the major things that were to be discussed was what we call in technical term, the globalist talk take. In 2015, Paris Agreement was adopted and came into force in 2018. So in the last five years, what has been the achievement of taking a Paris Agreement into action was being reviewed. So one and a half years of the technical review process, we clearly are not on track in meeting the 1.5 degree target that the Paris Agreement sets as an objective. Now, this was a very serious issue because when you look into the Mitigation targets, the world's temperature is already rising by 1.1 degree, and the objective is to maintain 1.5 degree, and we only have a wind by 2030. So in that particular sense, we're expecting a, quite an ambitious outcome, given that they would definitely move away from the fossil fuel. In the past, we dived into how do you um, move away from coal. But for the first time, this COP has brought in the fossil fuel as an entire and transitioning away from that, really giving focus on the renewable energy technologies. Second thing was related to the loss and damage fund, because there were five meetings that took place in 2023 through a transitional committee that prepared how a loss and damage fund that was agreed last in last COP in COP27 really would be set up. So in the very first day, the COP presidency was very smart to adopt this decision. So in that particular sense, it was a good win in going forward. Over $700 million were also placed to the fund. So this was a good you know, trust-building exercise that took place at the very first day of the COP. But having said that, what we also wanted to see was these funds, this uh, transitioning away from fossil fuel, 
we wanted that to be backed by the strong finance and technology support as well. Of course, that did not quite happen. There are a lot of mitigation and adaptation actions that has to be built. A country like Nepal has prepared something called national legitimate contribution or national adaptation plans submitted to the UNFCC. But what it needs to be done? And these plans need to go into action. And we have said these plans are conditional. We will only implement that if the, uh, the financial and technology support is given to us. But unfortunately, this COP was not in a position to really back that financing uh, to say that we will support those actions prepared by country like Nepal. So in that particular sense, expectations were not fully met. But largely, there was a good signal that climate change needs to be tackled well and also that the fossil fuel will have to end at some point of time. Seems like there is a lot to unpack here and a lot had happened at this year's COP. So let's start with global stock take. As you mentioned earlier, this year's COP was centered around the culmination of the first ever global stock take, which is a massive milestone in achieving the Paris Agreement and was the most contested draft during the negotiations especially around the use of language and inaction around fossil fuel phase-down. So much so that this COP had to overrun the official deadline by a day. As an expert on this topic, Raju, can you give our listeners a 101 on global stock take and why it is essential? Well, the design of the Paris Agreement was such that it would be the culmination of both top-down and bottom-up approach. So every country would provide the national commitment, what they would do in terms of reducing global greenhouse gas emission. And this would be reviewed every five years. So this was the design when the uh, Paris Agreement was agreed. So in the last five years, the global stock take was to see whether the implementation of the Paris Agreement was on track or not. If it was not on track, then we needed to do a course correction. So this helped us look backward and see what has been the achievement in its implementation. And what that revealed is, we're not on track. We're not in track of meeting, let alone 1.5 uh, degree, but we are in the track of three degree by the end of the century. So that's what the global stock take really showed us. In terms of when your temperature goals are not being met, that means you have a massive investment you'll need to do in adaptation. Loss and damage cost is going to be extremely high as well. But then just knowing what the problem is not sufficient. So we needed to see what will be the forward-looking process now. So that's why we call this global stock take backward-looking, but also guiding the forward-looking approach. So for this, the political decision had to be made. So this basically looked into the various issues about mitigation targets being made or not, adaptation uh, actions being done or not, adequate finance was being mobilized for the developing countries to take climate actions or not. So all that was reviewed, and it came out that it was not on track. So now this has given an indication that this will have to work on in finance, mitigation, and so on and so forth. And it also talks very clearly that by 2030, 43% of the global greenhouse gas emission must be reduced. And by 2050, 60% must be reduced. Only then we'll be on track in meeting 1.5 degree by the end of this century. That is a very clear indication because the objective of the Paris Agreement, if you look at, there is an objective on the mitigation on 1.5 degree. There is a objective on building a resilience and sustainable development. There's an uh, objective on making financial flow consistent with low carbon and climate resilient development. So all these objectives has to be met. And this is given a signal that the global stock take has given a very clear signal saying that, okay, this needs to move forward. We will see what that actions probably from the next year. 
that was an excellent explanation on global stock take. So we are not really on track for 1.5 degrees uh, as according to Paris Agreement. But has this global stock take provided a clear roadmap for policymakers? Yes. Well, the global stock take was a very, you know, excellent approach of mirroring on what the implementation of the Paris Agreement was. And very clearly so that if the globe is in track of meeting 1.5 degree or not. And it clearly showed it's not. So in that particular sense, it has given a very clear signal to say that all the developed and developing countries, the world is heading into three degree world. So in that particular sense, the kind of plans that has been put forward are significantly insufficient. So we need to ramp up our actions in terms of really cutting down our greenhouse gas emission. And what it has also said to all the parties is by the end of next year to provide the nationally determined contribution or long-term strategy in reducing greenhouse gas emission. Because the current plan is insufficient, so every country needs to really ramp up their ambition. So that has been a very clear signal. And not just that, this has to be backed by financial support, whether it's in the developed countries or supporting the developing countries in moving away and adopting a low carbon resilient uh, development that investing in that particular line is key, whether it is the national budget that needs to align with the climate friendly policies or it is the developed countries supporting the developing countries to meet their uh, nationally determined contributions that looks into the reduction of the greenhouse gas emission. So that clarity has been really given. Now, of course, now it is up to the countries to really accept that and take that plans forward. But uh, I would also uh, emphasize that it is just not the countries, but also it's a very good signal to the multinational companies, especially coal or oil or fossil fuel companies who have been profiting out of uh, selling this fossil fuel to them that you don't have a long-term future. You need to divest from there. You need to move away from investing in fossil fuel and then invest in more renewable energy future. And why was including action around fossil fuel important in this global stock take? In the global stock take, the language on whether to phase out fossil fuel or phase down fossil fuel was a big debate. And this did not just start in COP28. It was already debated in COP26 in 2021. Since then, we wanted this to be phased out. A country like Nepal and Ismail Island that have a very high climate vulnerability wanted to phase out fossil fuel. It means that there will be no longer investment into fossil fuel exploring or investing in building pipelines and things like that. But given the very strong lobby of the fossil fuel companies and, and, and others, that was not possible. Even coming to COP28, the language still continues to be transitioning away from fossil fuel, which means that you can reduce fossil fuel, but not really stop using fossil fuel. So we still have a very dubious kind of you know, outcome in a way to say, we want to stop using fossil fuel, but then we just say it is phase down. Phase down literally means reducing of the using of the fossil fuel. But at some point of time, what we want is a clear action to phase out, which means we, at some point of time, we have to stop using the fossil fuel. Was there any clear roadmap on just transitioning away from fossil fuel? Like who transitions first? Is transitioning away from fossil fuel based on equity principle, common but differentiated responsibility? As there are many countries, especially developing ones, who rely mostly on coal 
for the economic benefit or economic development? Well, if you look at the climate actions to be taken forward, it is very clear that the developed countries, those responsible for the cause of climate change, will have to take the leadership. That they will have to show to the world that first they are taking steps to move away from using fossil fuels, whether it's for the energy usage or transportation or economic purpose, they have to take the leadership. Of course, developing countries can support in that action, provided that the developed countries are also supporting them with finance and technology. But now, what we also can say is, developing countries in recent decades are one of the highest emitters of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. They will also have to take into account that they also gradually start transitioning away from uh, using fossil fuel. But for countries like LDC senses who have very low capacity, poverty is still an issue, many do not still have uh, access to energy. For them, immediately moving away from fossil fuel would be quite difficult. So they might take longer time, but the leadership should definitely come from the developed countries and higher-emitting, higher-capacitated developing countries as well. Hi there, this is Somit Nirnipani from Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. We hope you're enjoying Parts by PEI. As you know, creating this show takes a lot of time and resources, and we rely on the support of our community to keep things going. If you've been enjoying the show and would like to help us out, we'd really appreciate it if you could become a patron on Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows listeners like you to support creators like us with a small monthly donation. Your support will go a long way in helping us continue creating high-quality content for you. So if you're interested in supporting our show and becoming a part of our community, head on over to Patreon and become a patron today. You can find us at patreon.com slash podsbypei. Every little bit helps, and we can't thank you enough for your support. Now let's get back to the episode. Now moving on to loss and damage, which you mentioned was one of the biggest wins of this year's COP. This year, we saw numerous incidents of climate change-induced disaster in our neighborhood and throughout the world. So we need to recognize that countries did come together and that there, there's an agreement as historic as loss and damage and operationalization of loss and damage fund, which has been a long-standing call from vulnerable nations for at least 30 years. As someone who has worked for several years on this topic of loss and damage, how do you view the significance of this milestone, acknowledging the complexities surrounding fund allocation and distribution? And again, pressing on the roadmap, have we gained any clarity to whom, how, and when the fund will be operationalized? Yes, at this COP, one of the major outcomes was the operationalization of the loss and damage fund. It was agreed on the very first day. It was a very strong trust building and a very strong signal given to the world because the loss and damage issue was swept under the carpet for almost over in the 30 years. There was a very long, dedicated fights by the small island developing states and LDC countries in having this fund and this fund going forward. Climate-induced disasters are happening all around the world. It is just not an issue about developing countries or uh, countries like Nepal. It's, it's happening in the northern hemisphere as well. Like if you look at Europe or in the U.S., everywhere it's happening. Because of the lack of appropriate or timely actions on climate change, the loss and damage is becoming inevitable now. It's, you know, uh, countries are having huge climate disasters that is 
displacing thousands of people. People are having to migrate. There's both economic and uh, non-economic losses. So in order to really address this, this COP has really made an effort to give a signal that we need to address loss and damage. And that's a good sign, particularly of this COP. There was also, as I said, $700 million pledged to the fund. But this money is not going to come very soon. That's my understanding, that this, uh, the mechanism will have to be set up. The fund uh, uh, board is yet to be set up. Uh, the fund secretary is yet to be established. The policy procedures and on what basis the funds will be distributed, all those criteria are yet to be set up. So in that particular context, I would say it'll take a couple of years and the money that is coming into this fund is only peanuts given the extent of problem that is globally being seen. So we will need hundreds of billions of dollars if you want to really tackle loss and damage. So just having over $700 million is only going to set up the fund, have you know policies in place, things like that. So in order to support countries, you'll have to massively scale up in raising more funds and having those policies and criteria in place as quickly as possible so the fund can really support countries like, like Nepal. I know that really needs to show that it is just not about agreeing to a fund, but actually delivering funds so the people on the ground, the communities on the ground can feel the decision in COP28 was actually, in fact, for us. So that realization has to be given. That can only happen when the uh, money actually flows to these countries and communities. So what will happen in the meantime as the fund gets collected? Uh, this type of disaster would not stop. For example, what happens if an incident like Melamji flooding happens again? How, how does a country or the community rise up from these type of incidences? Well, if you see in the last couple of years, Nepal has faced extreme climate-induced disasters. You know, you saw the Melamchi case, we saw the Manang flood in 2021, and also this year in, in Mustang. So these are, we can say that these are very much related to climate-induced disasters. But of course, countries like ours will also have to work and to prove that this kind of events that are happening, the trend that is taking place is due to climate change. So it'll have to be backed by both science and also by social perspectives. Now, in order to do that, we'll have to you know, work on uh, scientific information, data, and, and so on and so forth. While that preparation is taking place, at the same time, loss and damage fund is also being in place. So as I said, it might take a couple of years to come from that particular fund. But of course, the communities cannot wait. Countries like ours cannot wait that the fund will get operationalized, all the money will come from there. No, that is not going to be sufficient. So Nepal or a country like ours will have to explore on what are the other avenues of funding. Because having a loss and damage fund is one thing, but that is not the only source. We'll have to see whether we can receive resources from Green Climate Fund or their adaptation fund or other multilateral and bilateral sources in order to support communities like in Melamchi or in Manang or in Mustang. You know, only that will actually help the communities on the ground. Otherwise, we'll be waiting for a very long time because this fund is, as I said, still very uncertain on how, how that will be coming and operationalizing in terms of actually delivering resources. Now, moving away from loss and damage fund, but continuing on climate finance, fixing climate finance was one of the stated aims of COP28. How do you see the narrative surrounding climate finance evolving, notably when the pledged $100 billion per year 
in 2015 appears inadequate and hardly met. Yes, this $100 billion per year goal was set up not just in 2015, but going back to 2009 when the Copenhagen um, Climate Summit took place. And then we talked about two fundings. One was what we call a fast start finance. For three years, 2010, 11, and 12, developed countries would give developing countries $10 billion per year. And that is the total for three years were $30 billion. And that uh, resources would rise up all the way to $100 billion per year by 2020. So when it came to 2015, there was a decision that the $100 billion uh, goal would be per year would be from 2020 to 2025. But we have the report that the developed countries have not been able to meet their target of $100 billion per year. So there's a lot of exercise being done how to really you know, uh, realize this goal. And there's also a lot of frustrations among the developing countries that it was promised almost a decade ago has not been materialized yet. So this is a very big issue for developing countries. This is the resource that many developing countries have prepared their NDCs or NAPs, thinking that the resources will come and will be able to take climate actions on the ground. When these resources are not being available, there's a lot of frustration. Of course, when the quantum has not been met, similarly, the access process has also been extremely difficult. So even if there's money, the money getting to the countries has been extremely complicated, complex, cumbersome, lengthy, difficult to understand. So there's a lot of effort. Now, how do you simplify this access process as well? So one of the outcome of the global stock take was also looking into the finance, that how much has been delivered in the last five years, and then whether the access of that money was really easy or not, looking at the qualitative side, not just on the quantitative front, but also looking at the qualitative side. So there is frustration, but developed countries have said that they are willing to meet their commitment. So one of the major thing in the COP issues always becomes a finance issue. And this is always dealt at the end because it also you know, interjects with the other issues. So there's a process now agreed. While the attempt is to fulfill the 100 billion target, there's also an attempt next year that there will be a new goal being worked on and identified. So the countries will work on having a new goal from beyond 2025, like from the floor of 100 billion goal. What will be the another uh, target that the developed countries will have to provide developing countries with climate finance? So that process is continuing, and I hope that there will be a decision next year. Definitely. The pledging sounds promising. But how are these climate finance being channeled in developing countries? Various reports suggest that the nature of climate finance is mainly in form of loans and repurposing of development aid. What are its implications for countries already grappling with debt and vulnerable to extreme weather events and those countries requiring such assistance in development? Yes, uh, when it comes to climate finance, there has always been controversy over whether the climate finance is additional to the official development assistance that the developed countries have been giving to developing countries or not. What I have said, as a uh, LDC country, Nepal and other countries have always said, the climate change problem is an additional problem because we already have problem with poverty reduction, food security, other disasters like an earthquake and others, economic development, health, education, water, all these things has to be met. But because of climate change impacts, the problems are growing and this is being added to that problem. Hence, the finance that has been provided to developing countries, the climate finance also has to be additional to their resources. 
But unfortunately, what we have also seen from various reports are that a lot of the resources that the developed countries have been providing are not really additional to the uh, development aid that has been given. So that is one of the major issues. The other issue that developing countries have been continuously raising is a lot of the assistance that is coming to developing countries is coming in the form of loans. While the countries are already indebted while they are doing the development, now countries are given debt, so they are further you know, punished. On one hand, the climate impacts are growing. On the other hand, they have been uh, overburdened by debt. So instead of debt, the developed countries should provide grants to the developing countries in tackling climate change. So that has been asked for a very long time. Nepal and LDC countries have continuously emphasized that we cannot be debt burdened now because our resources, instead of tackling and helping our people, we're having to pay back the principal and interest on the debt. So there's been a huge call how to move away from the MDBs into, to reforming them so that the more grants can be provided to countries like Nepal but at the same time also not double count with the development aid that has been provided for developing countries. Now going closer to home, Nepal did get a rare visibility this year at COP. For the first time, it had its own pavilion. The UN Secretary General visited the country just before the conference and highlighted the country's climate issue in global arena. Nepal also hosted a high-level segment chaired by the country's prime minister, which caught some attention in the national media. What were the key points delivered in these segments? And where are, are we successful in gaining and retaining the attention at home and abroad? Moreover, were there any encouraging signs of progress or actionable steps stemming from this heightened visibility? This year, Nepal did play and prepare quite well for COP28, given that there was a several meetings being organized here in Kathmandu, where Prime Minister himself was giving quite a lot of interest in that. That's what it appeared, and a lot of the news came out in media as well. Just before the COP, UN Secretary General Guedes also visited Nepal. So that also put Nepal on the spotlight. And he very clearly, from the um, Everest Base Camp and the Annapurna Base Camp, he very clearly gave a message saying that how the climate change impacts were happening in the Himalayas. So that was very good for Nepal to highlight its case that the mountain was a serious issue. And for Nepal, uh, this year had a few things. One, of course, getting engaged into the negotiations, as a, which is part of the process in the, the COP. The other one was also doing a lot of side events in its own pavilion. That was uh, for the first time Nepal had a pavilion. Other than that, also showcasing and ex- exchanging, sharing experiences by civil society organizations, indigenous people, youths, government agencies, and others in various you know, platforms and forums. I think in that sense, it was quite encouraging participation. But having said that, one of the very notable things that Nepal did this year was how to highlight and bring the agenda of mountains. There was a proposal, not by Nepal, by Andorra, like to have a mountain as an agenda to be discussed during the COP. Of course, that was not realized. But apart from that, Nepal did focus its activities around mountains. So Nepal's prime minister chaired and facilitated a high-level dialogue on mountain issues where UN Secretary General participated, country like Kyrgyzstan, Andorra, Bhutan participated. So it was a quite encouraging event. So because of the Nepal's you know, encouragement and also way to take this mountain agenda forward, its alignment with Bhutan, Kyrgyzstan, and also Andorra, 
mountain issues has been for the first time uh, you know you know really in a way uh, come out very strongly in the global stock take documents also in the uh, global goal on adaptation is has been mentioned now one of the things what i would call as a, a good sign is it has been very clearly stated that in coming june UNF Triple uh, C will organize a expert meeting on climate change and mountains. I think for this itself to happen and give that action point forward is a quite a big win for Nepal. It's the first time this has been done. So probably now this is a win, but of course if you just uh, sit back and do nothing, it may not happen much. But when the meeting is happening in June, Nepal will have to be proactive to say that this is what we want to present and the outcome of that meeting. to be really reported during the cop and really taken from there so our leadership will have to show a strong diplomatic and other form of you know leveraging in a way to say that this is our serious issue we are we are confident that we can take this forward and use all the forums and opportunities to really move this agenda forward so that has been a quite a big win uh, for nepal what challenges do we face as a vulnerable nation to climate change in voicing our concern and issue in this massive arena there are quite a lot of challenges in furthering our interest in this climate change multilateral process because sometimes we negotiate with our development partners sometimes going into those forums and really being harsh and negotiating is a is a tough thing so usually what nepal does in in positioning itself is rather than as an individual country furthering its interest it aligns itself with the least developed countries group so sometimes it's also easier for the country to work in a group otherwise the preparation will have to be much more to deal individually of course in the un forum every country can deal individually but at the same time nepal does the work in alignment with the ldc's interest because that's a common interest for all the ldc countries but this time the good thing is though with that acknowledging that challenges on mountain issues nepal did go ahead individually but there are also other country like bhutan which is tied to align with and i think it was a small group but an effective work but in order to really move our agenda strongly the challenges that i see is the continuation of the negotiators going there regularly because frequently we have changes in our uh, negotiating teams the second is how do we you know recalling the history or let's say what have happened in the past because when there's a frequent changes in the in the office that also makes it quite uh, difficult and also uh, the challenges that comes is when you frequently change people is you're building relationships and networks with other countries because for other countries there are people continuing in the process for many many years so it is very important that same people continue so that they know the history and also what they're looking for next time they can prepare accordingly so those are some of the challenges that i see for nepal uh, going forward but of course this is a process that we'll have to continuously engage so in the light of climate commitments and ongoing challenges what were the main expectations or aspirations going into this year's cop event were there specific areas of focus or initiatives that stakeholders were particularly eager to address during this conference aside from the mountain agenda well one of the major things that nepal wanted to really i think take forward was how do we have partnership and processes to implement the our nationally determined contribution and the nationally adaptation plan nationally determined contributions majority of the actions that is put there is related to the mitigation part in that document it has clearly laid out that by 2045 nepal wants to achieve net zero emission so there are certain sectors like for instance by 2030 nepal wants to generate 15000 of uh, hydropower electricity 
and uh, 5,000 is unconditional, but another 10,000 is conditionally give, provided resources will do that. Similarly, there are also targets on transport, for instance. By 2030, Nepal wants to have the sale of electric vehicle to reach 90% private vehicles and public vehicles by 60%. We want to uh, convert our cooking from gas to e-cooking. So there's been a target to have e-cooking, promote biogas and others uh, as well. So we have very particular targets on how we want to move uh, both in terms of production of renewable energy at the same time using you know, renewable energy in the country. So that is a part of our mitigation action of going forward. We also say that by 2030, we want to have at least 200 kilometers of railway lines run by electricity. So I think that's some of the very good actions point that is put into the NDCs and submitted. But of course, we definitely lack resources in terms of implementing them. So one of the points going into this COP was also to talk to various development partners and international global climate funds where resources can be mobilized so that our NDCs and national adaptation plans can be really taken forward and implemented. But when you say that, there are two aspects. One, we look for resources and networking, and we do networking to have more partnerships, whether it's a public, private, all these things, and uh, attracting them to invest in con- country like Nepal. But the other thing is also what we'll have to make ensure is any resources that is coming into the country, are we utilizing that or not? Are we being able to absorb that in an efficient manner or not? Because there are projects with Agvid, we have the resources, but our expenditure is also extremely low. I think that side also needs to be worked on. So just having plans and, and, and documents is not sufficient. But equally, what is important is when you have the resources, we need to also invest them on time so that the communities and the entire country can benefit. Now that this year's COP has concluded, in your perspective, what would you identify as some of the pivotal takeaways for Nepal from COP28? How might these lessons influence and mold the nation's forthcoming climate strategies and policies? Well, the outcome of uh, COP28 will have to be looked uh, from two different perspectives. One, a global perspective, one at the national perspective. So the global perspective would be like, as I said, in the GST, when it talks about tripling renewable energy investment or moving away from fossil fuel, transitioning away from fossil fuel, it means that Nepal will also have indirect benefit. So when the more mitigation actions are taking place, fossil fuel are not being used or explored, it means that we can meet the temperature goal, which literally will help us save our mountains, and, and that means less uh, climate change disasters and impacts of climate change. So that is an indirect benefit uh, that we will have on that, on, on that front. But having said that, we also have a direct benefit in terms of how we can advance our plans and, and strategies or, or whatever the programs that we have set. For instance, there have been funds being announced into least developed countries fund or adaptation fund or green climate fund. We can make projects based on our NDCs and, and NAPs and, and really submit these projects to these funds so that more resources can come and then we invest in our communities. That is one thing. The other thing is, of course, Nepal is very rich in uh, renewable energy. It means that tripling the renewable energy base means that we hope that there will be more resources also flowing in Nepal so that we can explore hydropower, solar power, and other form of renewable energy in the country. So that will also help us move economically. And the third part is that when you do more investment, potentially the amount of fossil fuel that we import primarily from India. We import about 2 billion U.S. dollars 
of fossil fuel every year. So probably they will be less importing fossil fuel and the money that goes in terms of dollars into uh, buying fossil fuel can be invested in other climate change impacts like in, in disasters or in uh, renewable energy or infrastructure, housing, health, education, other forms. So I think those kind of benefits we can definitely see. But again, what I would say that these benefits don't come just by the global agreements. These actions only happens with our own initiatives, own way of working and really trying to see that our commitment is being missed. We'll have to work towards meeting those goals. Moving on, Raju, what can we anticipate on the road to Azerbaijan in COP29? What is installed for us? What must we work on to move from commitment to realizing the targets? Are there any significant meetings, activities, or agenda for the next year, for the next COP? Well, COP28 had, uh, had just ended, so we have just uh, back from uh, Dubai Having said that, what I would say is the climate change action should not be from COP to COP. But there are a lot of things that we'll have to do nationally at home. And before I think about the next COP, I really want to see that whatever the commitment and opportunities that the outcome of COP28 gave, what effort do we make as a country in implementing that? How is the outcome of the uh, COP28 going to impact our communities on the grounds that have been impacted by climate change, you know, things in the agriculture sector or in terms of renewable energy access or it's a, you know, managing climate change disasters, so on and so forth. So I think that actions of nationalizing or localizing the outcome of the COP is extremely important. So that would be my first priority. But having said that, of course, once we do these actions nationally, then we'll have a lot of things to take to 29 in Azerbaijan so that a lot of experiences, a lot of difficulties that we face in accessing resources and implementing work, that experiences we can take and really in the agenda item that is being shaped, we can help influence that, number one. Number two, we have said that mountain is a very key part and we have really seen that this year uh, for the first time the issue has been embedded into global stock take that we'll be able to build on that uh, mountain uh, issue and then really make much more stronger case uh, in Azerbaijan. That will be the second part. And the third part is next year is expected to be a finance corp. It means that next year we will decide on a new number of what will be the finance that will be provided from the developed country to developing country, like the 100 billion goal. We'll have a new collective uh, target next year. So that process will be there and we'll be able to also contribute to that process to say that this is our need, both based on the quantity, but also on the qualitative side that we'll be able to contribute to that debate and discourse. Lots to do then. We feel that everything depends on the COP, but definitely much, much more goes beyond the COP. On this note, we have reached the end of today's episode. Thank you so much, Raju, for joining. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity to share my thoughts. Thanks for listening to Pods by PEI. I hope you enjoyed Lasta's conversation with Raju Pandit on evaluating COP28, a Nepali perspective. Today's episode was produced by Nejan Rai with support from Kushi Hang, Ridesh Sapkota and me, Sonia Jimmy. The episode was recorded at PEI Studio and was edited by Ridesh Sapkota and Nirjan Rai. Our theme music is courtesy of Rohit Shakya from Jindabad. 
If you like today's episode, please subscribe to our podcast. Also, please do us a favor by sharing us on social media and leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to the show. For PEI's video-related content, please search for Policy Entrepreneurs on YouTube. To catch the latest from us on Nepal's policy and politics, please follow us on Twitter at tweet to pei that's tweet, followed by the number 2 and PEI, and on Facebook at Policy Entrepreneurs Inc. You can also visit PEI.center to learn more about us. Thanks once again from me, Sonia. We'll see you soon in our next episode.